So yeah, the, the text here says they are of one heart and soul. Now that reminded me as it, as it kind of harkens back to that language, that repeated description in the Bible of how we are supposed to love God. We're supposed to love God with all our heart, with all our soul, that language, right? And so we see, we see really the second commandment working out like the first. This is how we are to love each other as well. We're to love your neighbor as yourself. So the question is, well, how much do you love yourself? Well, you love yourself with all your heart and with all your soul, don't you? And so in the same way, we're supposed to love not only God, but others. And so what's the evidence here in our text that, besides the fact that Luke tells us, what's the evidence that this is true in the church, that the people are of one heart and of one soul and love each other in that way? Well, verse 32, the second part of verse 32 says that no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. That word common there is the word koina koina in Greek, which is the root word for the word koinonia. Anybody know that famous word koinonia, what what we translate that as? Fellowship, a very common word. And it has the same root as having everything in common. It's just a unity of of fellowship, which these brothers and sisters are sharing. Verse 34 says again, There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold. Now this is good fruit. This is good fruit. This is the one another certainly being lived out. And here I'm reminded of Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6 says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. And just an interesting kind of exegetical point about that text. Um, Where your treasure is, there your heart will be. For where your treasure is, is present tense. Where you are present tensely keeping your treasure a.k.a. your money, future tense there your heart will be. Not the other way around. I think we normally think, well, if we love the brethren, then we will give. But Jesus is saying where your treasure is, there your heart will, will follow in a sense. So if you, if you know you need to do better in this way in which we all do, if you desire to love the brethren like we see happening here in Acts chapter 4, invest Invest your treasures and guess what will happen? Where your heart wasn't before, your heart will follow. Where your treasure is there, your heart will also be. So maybe a good challenge for you to do that heart work. It's hard to stir up our hearts sometimes just by sheer will, you know. Like we know we should love each other more. We know we should do that better. And maybe we've had that desire forever and never seen the fruit of it. But Jesus actually gives us an insight on how to... Make your heart snap out of it. You know, invest your treasures. There your heart will be also. Also, this communion, this love for all the people of God, including the poor, obviously, are, are kind of getting brought out here. It's interesting that this, this scenario is really an ideal that God established even for the people of Israel. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, uh, 15, verse 4, It says there that Israel was to keep God's commandments 
And as a result, God would bless them. And as a result, there would be no poor among them. That was kind of like an old covenant blessing, an old covenant um, result of, of faithfulness is that there would be no poor among them. And so we see the church caring for one another. They're really fulfilling God's intent for his people by caring for one another. And so you just see a fulfillment of the church doing what Israel was supposed to do in a sense, being that light to the world uh, and showing love and sacrifice for one another. The Bible says this is how they will know is by love for one another. So remember where we are again. As I said, that the persecution has started. The apostles have already been arrested. They've been warned. These religious leaders are actively opposed to Christianity. They see it as a threat to themselves, to their, to their jobs, to their prominent positions. The Christians are probably, as a result, already feeling pressure from, from family members, from the synagogue, from their work associates, maybe their, their jobs. And what we're seeing is, as a result, the Christians are, are quickly ready to come together to take care of each other in this time of struggle. Now it says, as they, as they sold off these extra properties, these houses, verse 35 says they laid the, the proceeds down at the apostles' feet. Does that sound strange to anybody? I don't know, it seems strange to me. So I kind of looked around to see what people were, how they were taking that. And... It's certainly obviously not an act of, of worship or anything like that, right? Like you come lay these things down. I don't even think that this is maybe a literal description of what was actually happening. I think it's kind of like an idiom, like a phrase of they were giving these things to the apostles to do as they saw fit, right? Um, I don't think the apostles were up sitting on some thrones, you know, and they're prostrating. And I don't think that's what was happening. It's just a, it's, it's maybe like a, a first century idiom. But it definitely, it definitely displays to us the fact that the people were entrusting their funds, their money to the apostles, to Jesus' disciples to do with, with their things what the apostles saw fit. And what, how does it say here that they were distributed? It says, as any had need. That's how the apostles were determining who was to get what. It was who needed what now I kind of put a little note here just to and maybe you you've thought about this as well but but notice that it isn't the government who's providing for the church it's the church providing for the church that reminded me um, of an interesting example where me and Cannon were doing some work we were in Bastrop we saw a family I don't know if you've ever seen them outside of the academy. I don't know how often they're there. Sometimes I see the same families. But you had a family outside of uh, academy in the parking lot asking for, you know, asking for money. Uh, middle-aged fa- husband and wife had looked there. He was well-dressed. She was very, uh, had pretty, nice, pretty dress on, long, modest dress, looked, looked fine. Two teenage kids sitting there in the grass. I don't know what they were doing. Were they playing with their phones or something? But they're asking for money. So to me, it was a good opportunity to just kind of talk to Canon about who is responsible for the family and the financial situation of the family. Um, and should we be found begging 
um, when this family looked, the entire family looked like they could be working, much less just the dad. So, Cannon, who, uh, who's supposed to be responsible first and foremost for taking care of the family? The dad, the dad right? Um, what if something happens to the dad? Who's, who's next in line? The mom? The mom? Yeah, yeah, maybe the, that, that family. What if that family can't take care of themselves and needs help? What, who would be next? Do you remember? The church? Nope. One more step. It would be outside, related family, right? Maybe siblings or maybe grandparents, maybe brothers and sisters. And then after that, if the family's in trouble, who would be next? Like you said, the church would then step in to help, right? But there is an order to these things. You see the biblical text describing all this. So um, there, is a, there is an order to this. And that all might be getting a little too far from our text here. But there is, there is an order to this responsibility, you could say. So now we're in our, in our, back in our text, Acts chapter 4. We're going to pick up in verse 36 here. Now we have a specific example. We've had the general statement that the church is giving. Now we have a, spe- a specific example of an individual's offering. And it really seems like this example is kind of being juxta- juxtaposed to the next. This is a positive example. We're going to have a negative example coming up. Verse 36 says, Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, he's a Levite, a native of Cyprus. He sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it down at the apostles' feet. Now, hopefully you recognize that name. You probably already know Barnabas. Barnabas will become a very prominent figure Throughout the book of Acts, Luke here is kind of giving him a, a nice little early shout out, uh, letting us know how, you know, where he got this nickname from. Barnabas is actually kind of his nickname. It was a given name from the apostles themselves. That would be encouraging, right? If the apostles gave you a nickname. And then so as you see Barnabas throughout the book of Acts, he definitely earns this name. He definitely lives up to it. Um, here he's set forward as being willing to sell property, give it all to the church for whoever needs. Um, As you know, Barnabas is the one who brings Saul, brings Paul into the Jerusalem church when they're all afraid of of him because he's been killing Christians. Uh, Barnabas does that that work. In Acts chapter 11, Barnabas there, uh, the Greeks are being converted off in Antioch. The Jerusalem church sends Barnabas to go kind of oversee the conversion, encourage the, the new brethren there. Barnabas does that. And then lastly, we also see Barnabas kind of sticking up and taking up for Mark, right? When Paul and Mark have that disagreement, Barnabas goes with Mark, which I think may be one of those examples where you're making a bad decision with the right heart, you know, like you... <laughs> Seems to be because I think I'm assuming Paul was in the right on that on that call there. But Barnabas, Barnabas had that that heart of encouragement. And we see it all throughout these texts here. The sincere brother Barnabas. Now, we have a chapter break, right? We're going to be in chapter five now. Uh, the Wycliffe Bible first Bible to have chapter breaks in it, right? They give the break here and it's always stuck since uh, the date I had. 1382 was when they first introduced into these 
Bibles, chapter breaks. But it really does kind of draw off this distinction here that we're going to have between this example of Barnabas' giving and what really here in chapter 5 is a sad reality, a sad reality of a negative example, a, a, a sad reality of that even in the apostolic church where the Spirit of God is certainly moving, certainly blessing the ministry, at the same time there is the enemy in the midst of even the working of the Spirit where there he finds some who aren't sober-minded, some who aren't awake, some who aren't alert, and he is able to devour them. Even in the midst of... the Yes, sir. Yeah, because you could kind of go either way with it, right? You could say, oh, this is a bad chapter break because you need to have the example of Barnabas right there so you could kind of compare it to, you know. Usually people are, are saying it in a negative sense from what I've heard. Like pastors are usually right. Um, oh, it's a bad chapter break. Or why did they break the verse up right here? It's kind of separating a, a, a thought that needs to continue. So you could go either way with it. Um, ESV actually had, I don't know if y'all have seen that ESV Bible where it doesn't have the chapters or verses. You can just, it just reads and it's supposed to be, you don't get that kind of, there's nothing there stopping you from just continuing to read and it can be helpful in that sense. So, yeah, we'd end up saying like somewhere it says, right, like in Hebrews. Right. No, I, I think we're very much glad that historically it's there and that they kept the same ones. Because like you're saying, like if you get a book and, or a study guide and it's a different version and then it doesn't, Kindle doesn't match up and then you're trying to. So I'm, I think it's, yeah, long term it's helpful. Um, but it can, it can be helpful or hurting. I think there's different scenarios. But it is interesting that even up until the 14th century, there weren't, they weren't there. They weren't there. But those people probably knew their Bible better than we do too. So, yeah, I'll take the help. I'll take the help. Okay, so Ananias and Sapphira, chapter 5, verse 1. But an, a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? Now, what it seems like is happening here is that Ananias and Sapphira maybe saw the praise that Barnabas received by his giving. Maybe they desired the same kind of praise. Maybe they wanted some cool nicknames too, right? Maybe they... Maybe they just saw all the, the hoopla that was given to Barnabas, and rightfully so. But unfortunately for them, they apparently kind of propped up their offering as more than it actually was. They were being deceitful in, 
in what they were actually giving, of what the sacrifice actually was. And Peter here, the text doesn't say, so evidently he had some sort of, you might call like prophetic insight into the scenario, into what was really going on, that they weren't being honest. And it leads Peter here to call Ananias to account right away with very severe language. Why has Satan filled your heart? Now, we kind of talked about this in the question and answer a couple weeks ago. I think we got into the question of the distinctions between whether demons or Satan himself uh, can possess or simply oppress a Christian. Right? But I think this language of Satan filling his heart Maybe that gives us some insight into Ananias' actual spiritual state, whether he's a believer, regenerate, or not a believer. Um, kind of the only other similar example where it says that Satan entered into somebody is with who? With Judas. So that's not a good, helpful reference if you're Ananias, right, for what that language can kind of denote. Uh, because we know Judas's spiritual standing but i think it i think there's another layer that gets i said extra interesting i don't know if that's if that's how i should have said that but it's peter that's using this language of rebuke to ananias the last time peter tried to rebuke somebody he was trying to rebuke the lord jesus christ himself and what did jesus say to peter Get behind me, Satan. Peter at one time, likewise, had had his mind set not on the things of God, but on the things of man. But it's also interesting to note that Peter, although he had greatly sinned in this way, and he's going to sin again. Paul could have used the same language, I think, as he distorts the gospel and is stumbling all kinds of Christians. Um, Even though Peter has sinned and will sin again, he doesn't allow his, his personal fall to keep him from calling sin, sin. He doesn't hesitate. He did it. He repented. He removed his log. Or he removed his, what is it? What's the little one? The speck. He removed his speck. And he's able to call sin, sin. He doesn't hesitate because of his his personal lacking. Now, I think this is important. Let's, Let's take note of exactly what the sin is of Ananias and Sapphira and kind of what the sin is not. Because the sin of the couple is not simply that they didn't give all the money that they got from the sale. That's not exactly what the sin was. The sin was that they lied about what they were giving. They may have still given a whole lot of money. It wasn't that they just simply kept some. It was that they lied about what they were giving. They said they gave everything apparently. So, the reason I think kind of cutting this real sharp is that the giving presented here in the early church was not some sort of mandatory like communistic socialistic Marxist kind of required giving where everybody just simply abandons everything they have Um, but this was more of what the Bible would refer to as a free will offering of what it seems of extra properties 
in extra lands because people still had probably I mean, it talks about Mary having a house later on. I mean, it doesn't mean that they all sold everything they had and just kind of mixed it together and then shuffled it back out. They gave what they could and they were giving great what I would consider like extra properties, extra things, it, things they were able to give. They were giving great, great sacrific, sacrificial offerings. And if you look here at the following verses, um, it clarifies what I would call like the freedom that Ananias had to give or not to give these things. So it wasn't that that was the, the stumbling block for them. Verse four, Peter says, as he follows up, he says, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? In other words, before you sold the property, it was yours to own. You weren't bound to sell it. Then he says, and even after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Meaning even after you sold it and made that money, you could have done what you wanted with the money, right? That's kind of interesting that the Bible, and the reason I think that maybe it's helpful to make this point um, is as we kind of see pressure come against the church and if persecution grows and we find ourselves in really difficult situations, even like what I was talking about earlier with the biblical prescription for who bears the responsibility for providing for families. Um, these kinds of things might be really helpful if things get tough. Because as things get tough, um, situations bring anxiety and stress and then argument. And then we don't want that. We want to have clear, uh, we want the whole church to understand how these things are to work. So that if it does come to, hey, we need help, financial issues, who's giving what, Everybody's on the same page, right, with what's expected, what the responsibility is. So it almost makes it easy for the pastor at that point where he's like, hey, the Bible tells me how to, what, how to do with this money. It's not like I'm having to pick who gives what and who, you know. Um, and it's helpful if we're all on the same page so that there's not a question. Nobody gets, feels hurt. Um, if you want to see Paul unashamedly kind of deal with the issue of responsibility and giving, right? The, the issue of the widows when Paul, is that second Timothy? First, which one? Six, first Timothy six, where he just lays, this is how the money works. Um, and read through that and it, and it might, you might be kind of checked on, oh, wow. Um, so, Another interesting point here, kind of a very pointed question from Peter in verse 4 that you see, this rhetorical question, why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? Now what did Peter just, Peter just kind of pointed to the source of Peter's, uh, of uh, Ananias' sin as being Satan. Now he says, why have you contrived this in your heart? So you just kind of see that, that interesting paradigm there. Um, Peter knows how and why sin happens. He knows why it works. And, and even though he's already said, Satan has filled your heart to do this deed. And, but why have you, I mean, it just shows you, we've talked about this recently. I don't remember what, what, what we were talking about. Jesus as well is marveled by unbelief, by sin. Sin is, I say sin is insane. Sin makes no sense. 
to the point where Peter, even at this point, why would you do this? Well, you know why it happens, how it happens, but I mean, especially, think especially in the first century church where the Spirit of God is evidently present and working. How foolish, Ananias, did you think? You didn't think your heart would be revealed before all? I mean, um, sin is unbelievable. And we still do it. We're, we're insane. Because we all believe, right? We all believe that God knows not just what we do, but what we think. We all know that the Bible says that the books will be open, that it, and we still choose. That makes no sense. It makes no sense. Yes, sir. Oh, the widows? First Timothy 5. Okay, thank you. Yep. First Timothy 5. Thankfully, we have the references in our Bibles, so. <clears throat> Peter then says, Peter's not saying that you lied to the church specifically or even lied to the apostles. He says in verse 4, you have not lied to man, but you've lied to God. Verse 3 says specifically that Peter lied to the Holy Spirit. You lied to the Holy Spirit. Then Peter says you've lied to God. Obviously, this is one of the kind of proof texts, the classic texts for showing the deity, you could say, of the Holy Spirit, that there's just the equation there between Peter. He can say you've lied to God, you've lied to lying to God, is lying to the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit is God. Father, Son, and Spirit. One God, three persons. We describe it as the Trinity. Yes, sir. And not maybe you lied to your Savior, you lied to the Father, you lied to in general. Yeah, he does say God. Yeah, the Holy Spirit is in there. Like it's kind of like the Bible describes it as like when you sin, you're grieving the Holy Spirit. Specifically, like the, the Holy Spirit is who is in you. The Holy Spirit is who's working. And when you, I don't want to say blaspheme him, when you, uh, when you ignore him and you harden your heart, you're specific. That's, there's actually a specific person pointed to there, which is the Spirit. Um, yes, sir. Spirit of Christ, the Bible calls him. Yes, ma'am. So when the Spirit, when I remember the day before, I don't remember I was there, 
but the teaching made you feel like you were there? That's a good. That's a good question. That's a good question. I would. And you have a good answer. So I was kind of thinking along, in a sense along that line, like the, like the Hebrews 6 language. Um, a lot of that language is taken to mean the, the, the work that the Spirit is doing in the midst of the church, that who's, that's who you have ignored and rejected. Um, just, so that same Spirit there is literally here now working in the same exact way. Um, and so for everyone here who is rejecting in a sense and, and not submitting to the, the conviction of the spirit, um, because you can, in a sense, resist the Holy Spirit, right? There is a sense in which you harden your heart to it. Um, if he wants to save you, he certainly can, but there is a sense in which we will, we just willfully reject him until he changes our will, but... Yeah, I think, I think the Hebrew 6 language is kind of what I'd point to and how that language can be used. Um, what is the, the specific language of Hebrews chapter 6 in regards to the Spirit? What was it? Yeah, you've tasted. Ta- they tasted the gift of the Spirit as he was at work, in, 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 in especially in this church here with Pentecost just happening. We're going to see the apostles are continuing to work the miraculous. Um, certainly, they've tasted the Holy Spirit. Maybe, maybe enlightened is the wow, shared in the Holy Spirit even. So, I guess all I'm saying is there is a sense in which you can share in the work of the Holy Spirit and not be regenerate and, and reject that. And therefore, lie to him. Right. Not yet. He's coming. Yeah, there's good and bad. Like I said, the apostles just got arrested. They got warned. I mean, that that pressure is already there on them. But I'd say in general, the spirit is working. It's good in that sense. I mean, the miraculous is happening. Wow. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah, that's why I just kind of mentioned there, there must have been some, press, some pressure already coming upon the church for them to feel like that, that this scenario was already happening. Once the apostles get arrested, once, once they're told you cannot speak on Jesus like they were already told, at that point it's getting very dicey as far as how are we going to operate, how are we going to evangelize, how are we going to worship. I mean, all that stuff already has to be happening. I mean, persecution was happening before, don't get me wrong. You look at Jesus, they just crucified the leader. Um, so, um, yeah, persecution, and that's, there's already a, a, a worry, I'm sure. If your leader gets... Jesus told them that's going to happen to you too. Don't think they're going to hate me and not hate you. So, yeah, we don't get a lot of the details in, in exactly what leads to, to this, this significant kind of change in the giving. And um, Maybe you could just chalk it up to the church being that much more sanctified than Old Covenant Israel in the, in the Jewish synagogue scenario where there was still the poor amongst them that weren't being held out. And then as the Christians came together, they're led to actually do something that probably should have been done before and these poor being helped um, amongst them. So maybe that's, maybe that's the distinction. So, okay, let's look at the Lord's judgment here on this sin. Verse 5. It says, when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. Verse 6 says, the young men rose and they wrapped him up and they carried him out and they buried him. That's pretty scary, isn't it? You come to church. You come to church, you're in a good mood. I got a big check for the church this week. I bet um, Raymond's going to, he's going to see this one. You show up, you give it. Tafik says, what, is, what are you doing? <laughs> and you die. And you die. Yeah, I, I thought it was only the God of the Old Testament that did things like this. It's the same God, isn't it? The same God with the same view of Sin, the same desire for His people to be a holy people. And the Lord is sovereign in how He dispenses His judgments. I mean, as we talked about yesterday, I doubt very seriously that there's not anybody here who has not lied to the Holy Spirit. Who has not done it many times, but yet, by the grace of God, we're in the same church Ananias was in. We're in the apostolic New Covenant church. But here we sit, Another chance to repent, another chance to hear the grace of God, another chance to be sanctified where his life is cut short, apparently on his first sin. So the Lord is sovereign in his judgments, but it's terrifying to think of. And then we read the, uh, the text a couple of weeks ago, I think it was, or maybe it was last week, the reference about the Lord's Supper where because of the sin and the partaking of the supper, many are sick and some have fallen asleep. So apparently the Lord's judgments and physical repercussions for sin continue to happen, at least for some time, if, if it happens today or not. I mean, you have the book of James, where apparently some are so sick, they need the elders to come to them, and the call there is for them, if there's any sin, they need to confess the sin. Apparently sin still has some sort of part in maybe that illness or sickness, so... Would we think that sin would, would 
stop having physical repercussions. I mean, it only makes sense, right? Sin has destroyed everything. The whole reason there is physical problems is because of sin. We still continue to die, right? We, our bodies still suffer the fall in that sense. So, in the, also the Lord, the same Lord of the Old Testament, is not done. Verse 7, after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for such, for so much. So the wife strolls up deliberately late. You can only guess, you know, you use uh, some sanctified imagination. You think she's going to draw out the whole, oh, everybody, Ananias, oh, you guys are great. You know, so she walks in. So it kind of continues the praise, you know, I'll come in a little late and keep the party going and keep the praise going. Peter kind of gives her, you could say, one last opportunity to repent. What if she would have repented? She was directly asked. She was given the chance. Unfortunately, she doesn't. She says, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead. They carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. So the death, the judgment of Ananias and Sapphira. What's happening here? What's happening is that the holy God is setting up a holy church with holy standards. How holy of an atmosphere was God setting forth for His people in this church? Well, verse 11 says, There was a great fear upon the church and upon all who heard. People were afraid. Right, rightfully so. Verse 13 says, None of the rest dared to join them but the people held them in high esteem. I think verse 13 kind of poses a very ironic, what would you call, kind of paradoxical situation here. Um, The people didn't dare join this holy people, and yet they esteemed them. Uh, So who did join? It says the church continues to grow. Who's joining? Well, those who are joining are people who are filled by the Spirit of God, those are the people who are willing to join and be added to the church, as, as verse 14 is going to say. The Spirit of God, those people will desire a holy people. They won't be afraid of a holy people. That's what they're looking for. Um, the application maybe for this section, I said, don't be afraid to be a holy people. I think some people think that being holy and I mean holy in the appropriate biblical ways, of, of, of course, a lot of people think this will keep people from wanting to join us. Right? If you're a holy people, if you're a separate people, if you're a distinct people, ah, no, you know, who's going to come? Everybody's going to be turned off by that. Um, 
We don't see that. We see that if the Spirit is working in people, they desire a holy people. Spirit-filled people won't want a people that look like the world. And so we don't need to impress the world to draw disciples to our church. Many, I mean, this is an example, you could say, of church discipline, right? This is the, the Lord taking upon himself to discipline many churches. This is a very common theme, you could say, in evangelicalism now, is that church discipline is not even practiced. Why? Because they fear it's going to turn people off. They fear people won't want to be members of the church if they do church discipline, right? It's going to, it's going to diminish the, the numbers. But maybe those aren't the kinds of members a holy church really wants in the first place, people who don't want to be holy. You also have the issue of many people leaving you could say, modern-day evangelical churches to go to Rome, to go to orthodoxy, because they're desiring a sense of the holy. They come to our churches and they're silly. The pastors are just telling jokes the whole time. They're riding motorcycles on stage and whatever they do, you know, like you've heard the stories. People can see, I mean, there's plenty of people wanting their tears, uh, ears tickled, like that's for sure, but there's countless numbers of testimonies of people who have gone to Rome because at least they're acting holy, like at least they're trying to be holy. They don't know how to be holy or, you know, what really counts as holiness, but at least, at least they have a, 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 an atmosphere, a reverence, right? A high view of the church, although distorted. And so people say, well, at least they're trying, right? The evangelicalism is not even trying at this point. You have that that issue as well. <clears throat> Let's look at this last section really quickly here for the sake of time. Verse 12. You could say maybe this is the last, another aspect of this holy church. Verse 12 says, Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared to join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets, laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. They were all healed. That kind of gives us a glimpse, I think, of this fulfillment that Jesus spoke of in John 14. He says, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these he will do. You see the apostles... That's actually similar language, so I was kind of searching through the Bible because I'm trying to imagine in my mind what it would look like for everyone to be healed. It doesn't look like what, you know, the charismatics are doing where somebody says that they get healed and you have all the other people still leaving in wheelchairs and this kind of thing. That's not everyone was healed. 
That's unbelievable. In, in Mark 6, speaking of the way Jesus healed, it says, wherever He entered into villages, cities, country, they laid the sick in the marketplaces. They begged them that they might just touch the hem of His garment. And as many as touched Him were made well. That's unbelievable. Every single one of them was healed. Complete, total healings. Every single one of them. I mean, that would have been an unbelievable sight to behold. I know we've, we've talked, I don't want to stumble anybody if you're not into the movie thing, but I, I saw that in the, in the movie, the, Chose, the shows The Chosen, right? Where they set up this place outside of town where Jesus is healing and all the, there's a line, you have that big old line of people coming to be healed by Jesus and Jesus healing them. And what was funny to me was the show is portraying the disciples as like going off. They're, they're, they're back at the camp and they're like arguing about stuff. I don't know what they're arguing about. I can't remember what it was, but Jesus is out there healing every single per like, and they're not even like recognizing what's happening here, right? Or maybe they're already used to it. You know how we just kind of get used to even like great things, like our lives, like how great we have our lives, you know? We just immediately don't take it for granted. And we do take it for granted and we don't give thanks or we're not amazed anymore about how good we have it. Probably the similar situation for those guys. But you just had a line of just cripples and blind and lepers and every single one of them is being healed. The apostles were doing the same thing. Every single one of them, they were all being... And I also put a note there, not to, get in, not to get in the issue or poke a hornet's nest, but it specifically says who was doing the miraculous. It says the apostles were doing the miraculous. It even points out Peter for whatever reason, his shadow. People were walking by like just hoping that his shadow might fall on them. So to close, I think Acts chapter 4... Acts chapter 5 of what we've seen so far. We see some high points. We see some low points of the early church. Low point being that persecution has certainly begun. High point being the church begins immediately fulfilling the needs of one another with great sacrificial giving. Another high point, the apostles are working the miraculous. In a low, you could consider a low point if you are Ananias and Sapphira, but the Lord is purging those who do not fear the Spirit of God. But it ends on another high point. We see the church in the midst of all these wonders continuing to grow. And the church continues to grow now, even amongst us. Let's pray. Well, Father, our prayer is that you will continue to grow. Even our church, Lord, we pray that we would be holy people, Lord, we pray that holy people would desire to be amongst us. Lord, we pray that we would not just be a light to Austin, but that we would be a light to other churches, Lord, that we would be a people that would bring conviction, that would bring an example of how to handle the the words of God, how to handle a high view of the church and your people, Lord, and let us not forget as this example of Ananias and Sapphira reminds us that the Spirit of God who is in the midst of the church is no one to be trifled with, Lord, help us. Spirit, we pray that even now you would 
arouse in us your presence, that we would desire to honor you in our midst, that we would that we would worship, that we would worship you, that the Lord would be worshipped today in this gathering, Lord. We pray that the Spirit would overcome those who have not yet been humbled, those who have not yet been broken. Pray that they would be broken, that they would fall upon the, the risen Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.